I want to first thank everyone for all the work they did on uh, making uh, Christmas Eve service a, a, gr a great event. I think we might have, I don't know, I haven't looked at any of the numbers. We take attendance for the sake of knowing what to do next year for parking and otherwise, but I think it was the highest attendance we've had, and it went very smoothly. So thank you for all you volunteers. Thanks for showing up early. Thanks for bringing friends. Thanks for coming. Thanks for making Christmas Eve awesome this year. So give yourselves that other guy a clap or something. Um, this, I'd like to spend the next three weeks or so looking at the book of First, Corinth, First and Second Corinthians. I took a seminary class uh, in the summer of 2017, and it was on the, the title was Paul the, uh, Paul the Pastor. And we looked uh, a lot extensively at First and Second Corinthians. And for three weeks, I'd like to look at that with you guys. If you'll do that for homework, continue to read those two books together. I'm going to give you some insight with that down that will help you understand why Paul writes words that he doesn't write in any other book and the way his style of writing is different in these two books. And I'll tell you a little bit about that in just a minute. As an introduction, there is a darkness inside of us that is committed to and determined to ruin us. It keeps us from enjoying God. It keeps us from enjoying other people. It stops us from apologizing, for taking responsibility, for admitting our wrong, by, or it keeps us from exposing a weakness. It keeps us from forgiving other people. Pride is the grip of a grudge. That's why we're able to hold on. Pride is why we lie about our past. It is why we cheat at silly game boards because we don't want to lose. It's darkest when we are amused at someone else's failure. Pride stands in the way. It divides. Pride divides. It divides our relationships with other people. It divides our relationship with God. C.S. Lewis said this, it is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation, in every family since the world began. Pride is insanity. You, it, is, it is a form of crazy in that it, it, it causes the our God, okay, the creator of the universe, to stand over to the side so that we might enter the spotlight, that we would get front and center. There is a gravitational pull that, that, that it, it is so dense that it pulls us into this place where we think that we should be the center of all things. And, and that's how we keep score on things. It's a complete concept. The Bible says it is a concentration of self. C.S. Lewis, again, in another farther down the chapter, he writes, Pride is, is ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. Pride, it turns all things into a means. It, it, we, we evaluate our relationships, uh, whether a job is a good experience or a bad experience, an event, anything we might even attend, and it's ultimately set forth on this ego calculation of, well, is it good for me? You know, was, was, did it work for me? 
And, and so pride draws us to this uh, way of keeping score so that, you know, if it's not the person, place, event, it's somehow, if I don't get something out of this, then I'm not going to continue this. There are, fundamentally, there are two forms of pride. You can see this in, in, in multiple expressions, but there are two over umbrella forms of pride. The pride that we're most common with is the boisterous one. The, uh, I'm going to call it the superiority pride. That's when we look at friendships or events and, we look and, we, and we're comparing and we're thinking, I'm, I'm smarter or I'm thinner or I'm better or wealthier, or whatever it might be, and so it's, it's this robust thing. And, and, and the ultimate question is, am I being appreciated for that? Am I being, you know, recompensed for that? Am I being valued? I'll find someone that will value me, and then I'll go there. Don Miller, he's a, a, a clever author, when he writes a, a simple chapter on pride, he says, you know, his name is Don Miller, he says, it's like I have a radio station in my head, K-Don, Don, all morning, all night. And I would say I would add this to his insight. It's classic rock. It's the good stuff, you know? That's one kind of pride. There's another kind of pride, not superiority, but inferiority pride. It's a person that thinks about themselves all the time, but poorly. They think of themselves comparatively that they're not in it. They don't look like, they don't feel like they're in a good place. They don't feel like they look good. They don't feel like they are good. They don't feel like they have enough. And they're constantly beating themselves up. But listen, okay, listen, it's still all about them, right? It, it's still, they're still comparing themselves and they're always thinking about themselves. So I would add this to Don Miller's explanation. It'd be like, it's Kadon, Right? 24 hours a day, all about Don, but it's kind of that, that you know, sulky, self-loathing folk station that you listen to too long and you go, how can anyone not want to take their own life at the end of this? <laughs> but the point is, whether it's superiority or inferiority pride, it's still pride because it's all about you. And Humility shows up in contrast, and humility, by the way, is not thinking less of yourself, but what? It's thinking about yourself less. It's, it's kind of the concept of even being self-forgetful. You forget you're even in this equation. And the humble person is not needy for attention or approval, and they look at relationships and jobs and events not as means but as ends within themselves. Is, is it a good thing within itself? If you meet a humble person, you come away thinking, wow, you know, they're almost, they're almost forgettable in themselves because in, in your remembrance of a conversation, they were wondering how you're doing. They're, they're happy. They're relaxed because, right, that, that ego calculator program, it's not running. They're just, they're just in the moment. They're enjoying the person, they're enjoying the job, they're enjoying the event because the program isn't running. There's a lot of power in humility. If pride divides, humility unites. Pride is very expensive. The Bible says this quite clearly, pride comes before fall. It comes before destruction. It comes before 
isolation because pride divides. Let me give you three kind of examples of that. First is pride bends you. Pride bends you. And yes, it's the Christmas season, and I read a lot of C.S. Lewis, and a lot of the phrases today will be C.S. Lewis. And he comes up with this word bent. It's, it's, our, it's our sin nature that's, that's torqued. And the way pride bends you uh, is it's the root. As St. Augustine said, it is, pride is not a sin. It is the root of all sins. It is, it is this demonic Petri dish that is able to, to grow all kinds of diseases. And so pride is the root of these other expressions, and it's expensive in that it can bring about anger and, or bitterness. It can lead to anger and bitterness. It, it, if you're, you can be angry about injustice. That would be righteous anger. But then there's a point where it's not about righteous anger anymore. It becomes, it becomes prolonged anger. It becomes a deep-seated bitterness. And at the root of that, in this picture, just what was put in that was pride. Because, because there's, there's a part of bitterness that says this. There's kind of two ways to get there. The part of the bitterness goes like this. If I were in charge, this injustice would have been taken care of. You see? It's saying, I'm, I'm growing weary waiting on God. The patience of God is wanting me to move him over to the side, insanity, and take center stage and let loose some lightning bolts. There's another reason that people become bitter and, and have to be proud to hold on to bitterness. Okay, This is why you see, you see this in the symptom, is because you can't stay bitter or angry at someone unless you are looking down at them. There's something within you that, that says, I would never do that to someone else. See, if you can appreciate a person's sin against you, like I've done that to three other people, that would cause you to have compassion for them. Wow, this is what it's like to be on the receiving end? No, no, no. Long-held bitterness says, I'd never do that. That's beneath me, and that's how I'm able to hold on to this anger for so long. Sin will bend you. It causes people to be in fear. Not all fear is this way, but, but a lot of fear is based on this expression of pride that I know how things will work, whether it's the right way, your definition of the right way, or at least for me. And so I'm afraid that if someone else is in charge or I'm just afraid if life takes on its own randomness, I don't know uh, its outcome. And uh, people live in fear because they know what's best for, like, the world. And so they live in fear because there's no guarantee for that. And they work towards as much control as possible. Another expression of, of fear bending us in a, in a strange way is worry and indecision. Some people, not all worry and indecision is that way. Some people are slower at making quick decisions than others. That's just, that's just another conversation. Uh, but this is, this is an ethical part of this. And that, there's some people in the, in the insecure part of pride, right? When the person's self-loathing, that sort of thing. A lot of people that have indecision issues are really just proud people that don't want people not to like them. Well, if I choose A, some people won't like me. But if I choose B, some other people won't like me. So I don't know how to, I don't know how to choose. 
So you can see that sometimes a person of insecurity can be confused with a person that's extremely proud. It's hard to distinguish these two. Pride will bend you. It'll make you foolish. Pride will make you foolish. How does that happen? Why does that happen? Because proud people, they don't learn from mistakes. They're repeat offenders. Because every time they have an event in their lives, it could be a teachable moment, right? They're doing the ego calculations, and they end up self-justifying the story. Uh, I think it's called gaslighting, where they, they reinvent the story so that whatever it might be, the fallout or the breakup or the job that didn't work out again, it was his fault. It was her fault. It was the circumstances fault. It was the wrong fit. And so they don't learn from an opportunity that's right in front of them. A humble person, a humble person is looking for opportunities to learn. They can learn from things where 95% of it was out of their control. The 5% that was within their, and they made a decision that might've been wrong. They go, Hey, you know what? I can find that decision. I can find why I made that decision. I can learn from that decision. A, a proud person can't learn from, like, the, the experience in general. A proud person can't learn from direct criticism. A, a, a person uh, that is the superiority proud, proud person, if you go and confront a person that's the superior proud, they're going to make you pay. They're going to come back after you. They're going to attack you, or they'll dismiss it altogether. And then you'll think, never mind. And you, you were just taught a lesson. Here's a question. This year, has someone talked to you about something you've done that you need to take responsibility for, and you made them regret it? You made them pay. You made them feel very threatened, maybe. And you hope they walked away with, wow, that wasn't worth it. Even the inferiority pride has a, a game to play. They can't learn from, from their mistakes either when they're confronted because, because it will devastate them. And, 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 and you'll think, oh, just if, this one, if I just say this one more thing, this could be the tipping point. Oh, no. They're sulking already. They'll be weeping and crying. And so people learn, mm, never mind. It's, I don't know if that's going to be worth it. I want to just hold off on this one. Let's let this one go again. Let me ask you a question. This year, 2018, has someone confronted you in a way so that your response was not aggression, it was passive aggression, that you might, made, you might have done things that you could do so that they might feel guilty or regretful, or maybe you taught them it probably won't be worth it to do this in the future. That's pride. That's how it divides. That's why it divides in relationships. I think this is the worst attribute of, of pride, you, you know, is that it's, it is invisible to the person. It is invisible to the person in the mirror. It is a silent killer. It hides itself. It's carbon monoxide. It is... It is without any kind of smell. It's odorless. And by the time a person figures out that they might have this problem, the damage is long done. The irony here is the more proud you are, 
the, the less proud you think you are. <laughs> you take spiritual tests and you say, if you're doing it, I'm doing this great. It blinds you from your illness. And so here's what happens is pride divides. That friend of yours that's telling you that you're wrong and that you need to take responsibility, that you're now denying, that's not your next ex-friend. That's the person that's actually trying to help you. And, and, and pride will, will try to make you deaf to what they're saying or figure out a way to move this person from a friend to an ex-friend. Do, do you understand? If not this event, something will come up in the next few weeks or months where it's like, I, I don't think we're just, it's, you know what, it's not you, it's me. We're going to have to break up. We can't be friends anymore. And it goes back to this thing where someone says, you, uh, you made a problem and your denial of the problem is part of the problem. And I'm, I'm just, I'm not going to do this anymore. And then there you go. Let me show you some diagnostic questions on how to shine the light on this invisible illness. Okay. How hard is it to ask for forgiveness? And, and a kind of corollary to that, the forgiveness word, the depth of forgiveness. How hard is it to understand uh, the injured person's uh, bruise? Can you empathize with them? How hard is it to ask for forgiveness? Okay, that's just fundamentals. Now let's go, like, let's go up the ladder to little JV level, okay? How hard is it to confess and ask for forgiveness if and only if the other person's gonna bring in their part of it as well. I'll go if you go. How do you feel if they don't go? <laughs> it's a one-way confessional and you thought it was two-way. How about this one? This is varsity level. Okay, everybody outside, let's just say there's some meter on a wall that just judges stuff, okay? And it's true and you can't argue with it, okay? 95% of this thing is on the other person, okay? How hard is it to confess the 5%? Why would you confess the 5%? Why would you ask forgiveness for the 5%? Because it's the right thing to do. Why wouldn't you? Because of pride. That's how it shows itself. That's how it becomes visible to you, is usually in the context of admitting wrong, taking responsibility, confession of sins, independent of how anyone else is doing anything. But let me ask you, how much has pride cost you so far? Another friend, another position of influence, a, a, a family member? I've seen small groups explode over this. It divides. It divides churches. And here's the thing. It makes you absolutely, completely tone deaf to the Holy Spirit's prompting. That is the most expensive aspect and cost of pride. Now, all of that is an introduction to an introduction. This is Paul's letter to the proudest church in the New Testament times, the church in Corinth. And this is a book that's written with 
particular insight and strategy because 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians are written to this church because of who they are and where they are. I would love you to just read the next first chapter, chapters 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians for the next two weeks as we look at this. Okay? And I want you to see, keep in mind this introduction. I'll do some more introductions next week. But you've got to under, you, ha, you must understand this city and this culture to understand these two books. Let me tell you a little bit about Corinth. It's a city. It's one of the Greek cities, okay? And if you can think of it geographically, think of an a hourglass figure, okay, with a landmass here and a thin waistline and another landmass down here. The thin waistline, that's Corinth. It has harbors on both sides. In the north, it's to Europe. In the south, it's to Asia. What does that tell you? Oh, yeah, this is prime real estate. And, and one of the better parts of it is it's so strategic for commerce. And, and, and one of the best parts about it is in 150 B.C., Rome destroyed it. And then Julius Caesar realized how strategic it was for like, oh, the, the unprecedented potential for great wealth. This, this town with two harbors, you know, it, it, entering two major parts of the world. And so he rebuilds the city so it's a new town. Everything's flashy and new. And then when you consider the population, okay, there's no aristocracy there. He doesn't allow it. So he, Caesar, he populates it with, with soldiers, ex-soldiers, and free men or ex-slaves. Okay, so there's no one that just comes in and says, we've been here. There's no blue bloods that take all the money and the power. Everybody is like this. It's just a mob of hungry, ambitious, scrappy, high, highly motivated people to get ahead. Wow, it sounds like a town I know. And, and people that didn't have to go by the old ways, right? It's, it's the new boom town. It's the new place to be. It's the capital of potential. Wow, okay? The culture itself, because of so much tourism, because of so many people coming and going, the culture itself was, you must tolerate everything, almost everything. There, because, honestly, this, uh, uh, sorry you Navy guys, but because there are so many sailors in this town, and because there are so many people from all over the world, and because people are fairly transient, they had no sexual ethics. Promiscuity was encouraged. And their attitude was towards sexuality was anything goes, well, except modesty. I mean, I mean, there is a scarlet letter. It's the V for virgin. And as a matter of fact, um, uh, uh, Aphrodite, uh, where we get aphrodisiac, Aphrodite was the goddess of, of love and passion and pleasure and beauty. She had a, a major temple in Corinth. Uh, one author says there were a thousand temple prostitutes dedicated to running this shrine. If you were called a woman from Corinth, you were just called a prostitute. Their belief, their values in, I guess, what would you call it, religion, was you can believe in anything. Well, not anything. You can't believe in this one thing. Because people were from all over the world, they had hundreds of different gods to worship. And you could worship any or all of them. You just couldn't say there was only one God. Jews and Christians were persecuted regularly. The point is, the climate, the attitude of the culture was no holes barred, free competition. It's all about a fight for wealth and status and power. 
That's what's going on. And the way you got wealth and status and power most of the time was to put your name out front so that everybody knew how much wealth, status, and power you had. Yeah, it sounds a lot like our culture today, right? It's the Christmas letter you get. It's the Facebook page. It's the Twitter posts. It's whatever the things you do on the Internet. But you're constantly putting out there in this culture of, of shame and power, right, and honor. It's I'm better than you obsession that's taking place everywhere. Look, this is a quote from a historian. Corinth was a city where public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form. He means that literally. It became an art form. There was so much construction going on. Every time a building was built, a guy slapped his name on it. One of the city councilmen there in Corinth built a giant fountain in a pretty major part of the town, and he put a, a, a giant etched in stone. It said, it said, um, <laughs> it said uh, his name is uh, Babius. Babius paid for this monument out of his own wealth and approved it by his own authority as a city magistrate. I paid for this and I approved it because I could. He put that plaque on two different sides of the fountain so that everybody could see it. <laughs> this is true. They couldn't keep up with the statue production. And so people, they have, picked, they have pictures of statues of people, okay, but it had a different name on it because that's how you could self-promote. So there'd be like, I don't know, a statue of Thomas Jefferson or something, and I could come in and say, well, you know what? I'll pay X amount of money to put my name on that. And so the statue is of Jefferson, but it says Matt Cassidy on it. That's, is that self-promotion or what? Yeah. Man, wouldn't that be great if we could get somebody to put their name on that stinking parking lot across the street and say, yeah, Bob Johnson paid for this and pushed it through the city. I'd pay for that. I'd do that. Now, if you can imagine the culture here, because of this, it produced personality cults. People putting their name out there, constantly saying, oh, I'm better than you, I'm bigger than you, I'm fans, whatever it might be. And if you couldn't be that person, that happens, right? You could be a follower of that person and get swept up in his, you know, backdraft, or, right? Or his, or his what would you call it? In his, in his wake, you get caught up into the wake of this person that was famous or powerful or, or a great public speaker. Sound familiar? Yeah. Sounds a lot like today. And, and uh, here's a, I think I had a, uh, I thought there was a quote here. No, okay, never mind. Yeah. Hold on. Can everybody just uh, meet your friends? Hold on, I'll be right back. <laughs> okay, don't care. I'll find it. Okay. So... All this culture of pride, all this wrestling for positioning, all of this one-upmanship, all this putting yourself out there as someone important, do you think it made its way into the church? Oh, yeah, of course it did. The culture always makes its way into the church, but the church doesn't know it's in there because they're part of the culture. You can't ask a fish about water. And so Paul is from outside of that, and he's realizing that pride divides, and this is the proudest church in all of the churches that he has, and, and, and it's dividing the church. Look what it says in, in, in 1 Corinthians verse 1, verse 10. It says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, can you guys all just agree? Can there be no divisions among you? 
that you'd be united, right, in the same mind, in the same judgment. Humility unites. Pride divides. Look at all the divisive phrases in that. Why were, why was there so much division? Because there was so much pride. Look at the next sentence. For it's been told to me by Cleo's people that there are quarreling among you about stupid stuff. My, you know, he says, what I mean by this, each one of you says, oh, I'm from, I follow Paul. Oh, I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Jesus. I mean, isn't that like our church today? I don't know if you know this. Maybe I'm just in this business. But there is, there is a, a celebration and celebrityization or whatever of pastors. And it's like, oh, I follow this guy. I podcast that guy. I, it's, it's fine if you listen to other people preaching. That's fine. But are you, are you their followers? Are you dressing like him? Are you acting like him? I mean, it's, it's kind of strange. It's a strange thing. Some things never change. Yeah, there's, there's a C.S. Lewis quote. Lewis said, if you think the Bible doesn't apply to your life, you should, if you hear a person say the Bible doesn't apply to your life, you should tell that person to keep reading comic books. This is a grown-up book. This Bible is very applicable. If you don't see Austin and Corinth, then I need to spend more time on that. We'll look at that next week, as a matter of fact. But here, let me go at application. What do you do? What do you do? With, how do you kill the killer inside of your soul? How do you play a game where nobody, nobody can win? That's, that's what Paul is addressing in these two books written to the Corinthians. How do you do that? Paul, here's what Paul says. Paul says, don't play stupid games. <laughs> that's the message that Paul writes and his style of writing in, this, in, in these two books is fascinating because he assaults the culture in almost every sentence. He turns the whole thing on its ear, well, upside down. He says, don't play. This is so far from who God is, what he's like, and what he's done. You guys are just missing this. And so he says, I, he says, I won't play the authority game. I won't play the smarter game. I won't play I'm more influential than other people. And, and the, the, basically the theme of the two books is, look, it's not about me. And this is how he kills pride. This is his solution to pride. He actually uses his own writing and his own values that come through his writing as his example on how to kill pride. So instead of exalting himself, he just says, I'm just kind of a lowly person. He mentions, I don't know how many times, see, I'm a tent maker. <gasps> a tent maker? <laughs> Those are the poor people. <laughs> he has to work with his hands. And then he comes in and he says, I'm not just a tent maker. I'm, I'm promoting the man that I follow is a criminal who was crucified, was cast out by the religious authorities and the political authorities. So, yeah, that's who I hang around with. Everything he's pushing is contrary to what these people admire. Look at just a couple, the first few verses here. Okay? This is how he solves the problem of pride. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus to the church of God that is in Corinth, those who sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. 
look at it, study it, something hopefully will jump out in just three sentences. Anybody see it? Eleven times in three sentences, he says, Lord, Jesus, or Christ. Paul starts out of the blocks like a shotgun coming out going, it's not about me. Eleven times. There's another 16 times he says, God, Lord, Jesus, or Christ in the next short paragraph. He's enamored with Jesus Christ. It's all he wants to talk about. He's preoccupied. This is so counterculture. It's not even, it's not about Paul. Are you kidding? I, Paul's saying, I'm with Jesus. Jesus is the one who died that shameful death. He was a carpenter. He had to use his hands too. He, 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 was, he was rejected by everyone. Paul says, don't play stupid cultural games because they're keeping you from knowing God. They're keeping you from enjoying God. Even when he says he's an apostle, he has, to, he, has to, he has to launch with that. He has to roll that at Paul, I'm an apostle. But he could have said, I'm a great apostle. He could have said he's the greatest apostle. He wrote more books in the New Testament than anyone else. Most of our theology are from his pen. He doesn't say that. As a matter of fact, in chapter 15, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. You know why he says that in Corinthians? Because he's sticking the knife in them. He's saying, I'm not playing your stupid games. I'm the least of the apostles. And then he says, then he says, you know what? I shouldn't even be an apostle. But I am what I am. I, by the grace of God, I was given this title. You see why he says it there? Because he's, 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 he's throwing salt in this wound that's killing him. He doesn't flatter him either. You're supposed to flatter your audience so that they'll like you. Look what he says to the Corinthians. You know, this is this great city. It's the place to be. The church of God the church of God in court that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those in every place called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ both their Lord and ours hey Corinth you're not so special there's another like sand on the beach you know grain of sand on the beach or another drop in the ocean you're just you're just like all the rest of us what if, what if it's not about me? What if I'm not in the center of the universe? What if the world doesn't make sense when I'm in the center of the universe and the world doesn't work when I'm in the center of the universe? What if it just causes all things to divide? What if it's a form of insanity? Who gets to be in the center? Paul says this, Jesus Christ. He is single-minded in this one idea. 11 times in three sentences, 16 times in the next paragraph, he's going to say the divine love of Jesus Christ is the only thing that deserves to be there and has the power to be there. It is mysterious. It is powerful. It has the force to kill even Corinthian pride. That's how you kill pride. It is a reckless love that, it, that wrecks pride. It transforms individuals, it transforms marriages, it transforms families, it transforms churches, it transforms cultures. It breaks pride, turns it into humility, and brings people together. Paul is saying that Jesus Christ, and you read his resume, it doesn't read well. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come, but Paul says this, that is the very nature of God. That's, you want to know what God's like? You look at Jesus. And then he's, and he's saying this, that is the very nature of the human soul. 
Jesus is God and man. That's, humanly speaking, that's how we flourish. That's how we live. Humble is what we run on. Pride, it'll get you there fast and you'll blow an engine. That's what he's saying. It's all throughout the Bible. The humble will be exalted. It says that. And you know why it says that? Because that's the nature of God. And that's the nature of God creating everything as an expression of his image. That's, his fingerprints are everywhere, and his fingerprints are humble. Now, think about this for just the next decade. The problem of pride is not what you seek. The problem of pride is not what you seek. Because what we seek is love and value and a sense of significance. It is where we seek it. That's the problem. And it's not just to be loved. It's not to just be significant to some person. It is, I want to be loved by the right person. It's a great quote. The praise of the praise where the praise of the praiseworthy is the greatest of all honor. The praise of the praiseworthy is the greatest of all honors or rewards. And what we're doing is we're trying to find that everywhere but the right place. It's not what we're seeking. It's where we're seeking it. We're thirsty. We're dying of thirst. And we're looking at ocean water. We're looking at broken cisterns. We're looking at dry wells. And it's not love in general. It's love in specific. I want ultimate assurance of who I am. I want ultimate assurance of my significance and that I matter. I want ultimate assurance that I'm loved. And you can only find that in one place. And there's plenty of evidence for it. For God so loved the world. He thought it was that significant that he sent his only son. It's, it's there. Pride is so needy. And it's... And the answer to that need is right in front of us. Let's talk more about that. What do you do now with your condition, your selfish, stubborn ego, your inability to confess or take responsibility, the bitterness, the anger, all those sorts of things? What do you do with that? You come next week and we'll talk. (laughs) But today we talked about where, where we find what can kill the thing that kills us. Look at it. Read Paul. Understand why he wrote these people the way he did. Let's let's pray and then look forward to next week. Oh, Lord Jesus, we stumble around in the dark, and it's because we keep our eyes closed. We are so... We are so foolish. Lord, I'd ask that you would cause us to be wise, that you would open our eyes to how many different ways this sin of pride bears so much fruit in our lives. And I'd ask, Lord, that you would help us see how the antidote to that is to stop being fixated on ourselves, but to be enamored with you, who you are and what you've done. Lord Jesus, I ask that uh, your spirit would make afresh 
a new, a new longing for us to enjoy you. I'd ask that you would bless us with a new insight in the power of your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.